of Emerge, the global conversation on the future church that is emerging now. I am the Red Herring. In part one of our third podcast, Steve Taylor, lead pastor at Opawa Baptist Church in Christchurch, New Zealand, talks about the emerging church in New Zealand, its origins and diversity. Steve says the emerging church in New Zealand started about 10 years ago. He argues that the global movement owes a debt to the United Kingdom. Here are excerpts from the interview. What is going on in New Zealand as a society today in terms of the political, economic, social and religious situation? New Zealand is a very secular country. Church attendance is around 10 to 15 percent. We are meant to have a separation of church and state, so there's no sort of official church religion. An increasingly secularised country in terms of, you know, rise of other forms of sexual diversity, increasing right-wing economic agendas. Uh, driven by the whole globalisation, increasing multiculturalism as new groups join us. And I also see that, that almost 40% of the population claims to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Yeah, we're just in the midst of another census. Uh, we have a census every five years. So it'll be very interesting to see what the current figures are, but every census, the, the most growing religious group is those who have no religion. And is that really the area of concentration for some of the emerging churches in New Zealand, these people who are unchurched? I think that a lot of the emerging church energy has gone into people who are dechurched or have, who have had some resonance with the Christian story but are dropping out of church because those are initially the friends that you first have if you're a Christian. Um, I think there is increasing focus on those who are outside the church. So, for example, my church couple this Christmas ran an um, art installation in our main city square uh, and 7,000 people walked through this art installation reflecting on the story of Christmas and that's a deliberate attempt by us and by this couple Pete and Joyce Magendi to you know place the, the Christian story outside the church in the public marketplace where it belongs. What are the differences and similarities between the emerging churches in New Zealand and elsewhere in the world? The emerging church in the UK is much more Anglican based and much more worship focused. The emerging church in New Zealand often emerges within Baptist denominations. The unique charisms of the emerging church in New Zealand are focused on life beyond worship and therefore are focused on workplace spirituality, taking art into public places, on rituals that connect with people outside the life of the church, on resources that people can use without being there on Sunday. You speak of the emerging church in New Zealand having been there for 10 years. What is your take on the history of the emerging church in New Zealand? How did it all start there? I think we owe a debt to some of the alternative worship movement in the United Kingdom. So back in 94, 95, we saw ways of doing worship visually that helped us picture new scenarios. There were a number of us in New Zealand at that time who were wanting to experiment, who were realising that we weren't reaching 20s to 30s anymore, realising that a lot of our friends were no longer in church. 
and so looking for something, yeah, and it's just been an ongoing journey. Did people in New Zealand become aware of these alternative worship events in the UK, or did people from the UK come across, or how did the connection work? I think the initial connection was a person called Mark Pearson, who wrote the book The Prodigal Project, along with Mike Riddell, which really was the first emerging church book, I think, but before the turn of the century. And he went across to the UK, and people from the UK then came, and this sort of mutual conversation began. And for a long time, we weren't using the word emerging church. It was really only when the marketers in the US got underway with the whole emergent conversation that we, we started to use that term, because it enabled us to make sense of a wider conversation. How did you yourself become involved in the emerging churches? Um, I was 23 and I wanted to plant a church and it's the church plant so you've got tremendous space to be creative. You know, there's no expectations of what you can do. On the basis of that, you know, talking with my friends as it were, we planted a church that was cafe style, met in the evening, <clears throat> high use of creativity and cultural engagement. And then about five years later, we hear this term, the emerging church, and it's got all these shared characteristics with what we were doing. And so it gives voice to a, a conversation to what was going on in our local situation. What is your take on the history of the global movement? My take is that the word emerging church has been used in two ways. It's been used to describe anything new, and therefore it is a global conversation. It's also used to describe what faith would look like in a postmodern world. Why do you think people have such great difficulty in defining what the emerging church is? Partly because I think the emerging church is so broad and so diverse. I mean, so therefore it looks very different in New Zealand than it might do in Latin America, than it might do in, in the United States. I think also we live in very changing times uh, and people can find it difficult to visualize church new. Often pioneers struggle to articulate clearly what they're doing and often to know what they're doing. And if they get attacked, I think they can withdraw into themselves. I wonder if that's one of the dimensions of the emerging church that makes it harder to understand. How would you define the emerging church? Well, I really like um, what Brian McLaren said to us at the conference um, on Saturday, that the emerging church is like a new ring on a tree. And so it's not a slice of a pie of the existing church. It will be a new ring formed in a new cultural landscape called post-modernity. And in doing so, it will take the best of the practices it's been historically rooted in. You could have an emerging church in Colombia that takes the best of its history and seeks to reframe that in a post-colonial way. Uh, you could have a emerging Pentecostal church that takes the best of its Pentecostal roots and seeks to understand what that would look like in a postmodern world, post-colonial world that we live in. So it's the combination of the old and the new? Yeah, the combination of the old and the new that's appreciative of the cultural climate that's gone on. As it were, we're globally warming toward a new post-colonial future and so it's explicitly aware of what it means to do missiology in that changing context. I was very interested to think about how the indigenous forms of Christianity fit into this whole emerging conversation. For example, in South Africa, there's something called the African Indigenous Churches, yep. which are churches which did exactly what you're describing. They tried to adjust in the, at the turn of the, the 19th century 
to the modern context in which they suddenly found themselves and yet retain some of their traditions. And similar attempts have been denigrated as syncretism. And yeah. I was wondering how that model of church fits into the idea that you suggest about combining the old and the new. Yeah, we have similar models here in New Zealand. I've done some research around um, a movement here called Paimaria, which back in the 1840s was an attempt by indigenous Maori spirituality to connect with the Christian story. My comment would be that missiologists have learned from that of the need to engage in dialogue with new forms of church rather than to exclude new forms of church because the danger of exclusion is that they can end up even more syncretistic than if dialogue had occurred uh, in the early part. I would suspect that the cultural context around some of third world countries is still rooted in modernity uh, and pre-modernity. The emerging church there will need to wrestle with the full experience of what it is to be in postmodern times. But let me give a story to illustrate this. I am driving through the east coast of New Zealand and I meet a Māori, which is our local indigenous people, Māori family on horseback. It looks at first glance as a very pre-modern, you know, ancient way of living. You drive into their town and there's one dairy and one video shop and I can bet that the family on horseback have just been and bought the latest videos from the video shop and so that's the cultural shift from pre-modernity to post-modernity. It's not enough to be able to say just get back to your roots or be had your roots live the Jesus story in a world where you watch The Matrix and the latest video releases. How would the Ratana movement fit into this whole discussion of uh, indigenous forms of Christianity and the possible links to the emerging churches? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think again it would be about this sense that in the early days of the Ratana movement my sense is that the existing church looked for orthodoxy and points of disconnection rather than look for what the spirit doing and points of connection uh, and so as a result a you know two separate things grew up and so I think the lesson learned from that is that we might not be able to fix the past but that as we look at new forms of church we must focus on points of connection and points of dialogue to ensure that what is emerging continues to be in dialogue with all of the Jesus story um, otherwise we run the risks of that happening again. Oh, 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 oh,
That was Adoramus Day by the Abbess from the Visions Community in York, England. Now, we've assumed so far in our discussion that there really is a global movement. Do you think that people are sufficiently aware that this is something that's happening globally, or do people tend to think very parochially and locally? I get enormously frustrated with the parochialism of the emerging church conversation. Yeah, I think the United States has a lot to compliment itself for, but also a lot of blame uh, in this regard. In what way? In that constantly you get the impression that the only emerging church conversation is really a United States-based conversation. How do you think the emerging conversation could move beyond that? I think what you're doing is a really important part of it. What I tried to do with my emerging postcards uh, in January was try to get a visual picture going on of what's going on around the world. Um, sometimes I cynically joke that no emerging church conversation conference in the US should take place unless there are 50% of people from other countries invited on to speak. That'll never happen. But I just think it's just this constant awareness um, that ultimately postmodernity is about liberating the voices of the margins and that it's very difficult for groups at the centre to do that consistently and well and they just need to keep being intentional about it. The, the World Social Forum meetings that happen mm -hmm. as an alternative to the, I think it's the G8? Yep. Is that the kind of thing that you think should happen to counterbalance the emphasis in the US? Because I think you're right. I think the there is a sense in the US that this is the emerging conversation and that there's nothing happening beyond beyond our walls. Yeah, and that's arrogant and disappointing. Ongoing attention does need to be paid to it. Uh, not just global voices, but also ethnic and minority voices within the US. It's not easy to do. Here in New Zealand, the emerging church conversation is still predominantly white, Pākehā-based. We still haven't yet wrestled with and embraced you know, emerging forms of church amongst Māori and amongst Polynesian, amongst Indian peoples. And so this conversation is about me being critical about myself as well in terms of saying, you know, I'm at the centre of the conversation here as well. Me, I mean, the message of Jesus was one of embrace toward the margins, and that has to be a dominant paradigm, I think, for all of our conversations. My impression is that the emphasis on engaging the local culture also contributes to this problem in the sense that it uh, biases people towards getting bogged down in local particulars. Yes and no. Um, I sometimes look at the model of the Trinity and think, you know, there are three in one. There is uniqueness in the person of Jesus, and yet there is shared love between the three persons of the Trinity. And I sometimes wonder if you need that movement back and forth between the local and the global, between the one and the many. And so is there times when, for the sheer sake of one's identity, they need to focus on the local in order to be sure that they know what their own voice is, they can hear their own voice, and then they can emerge more strongly into a global conversation because of their unique identity which they've found but yet if they stay local they will not be global and if they stay global they'll not be local does that make sense so i think there's a one and a many balancing act that needs to go on all the time perhaps i'm sure that your own interest in globalization helps you to understand this particular issue of movement between the local and the global yeah i did a paper um, at a global missions conference in 2001 where I applied these paradigms of global and local to the emerging church, look, looked at congregations in Brazil and in the UK and in New Zealand. Yeah, so for me there's this whole missiological basis um, which needs to underpin the conversation. When you read the first chapter of Carson's book, you know, he 
at the end of it, he, he talks about, you know, this is a missionary movement. And at that point, he then should have gone on and done a whole lot of missiology reading and missiology work on the emerging church. Yeah, that, that would have been a more helpful paradigm, I think. Is the paper that you referred to available on the net or not? It's meant to be coming out in a book in 2001. It still hasn't come out. People wanted, they could email me uh, and I could put it up. I could, I could post it to them. In terms of the global emerging church, are you aware of any churches of this kind in Asia? There's one postcard on my blog from a church in oh, Thailand, I think it is. I have, in putting out the postcards over the summer, I had conversation with um, someone in Okinawa. I've had conversations with people in the Philippines. So yes, there are these conversations going on. Now, to get back to the influences between what is global and local, are there any mutual influences that you are aware of between the global conversation about emerging churches and emerging churches in New Zealand? I mean, I use the phrase global, um, which is a combination of the global and local, um, to describe, I think, all cultural interactions, whether they're religious or not. That's a word coined by... Um, uh, Oh, I've forgotten his name. Roland, Roland Robertson. Roland Robertson. We are part of a global conversation. We share shared themes around issues like creativity, community, wanting to recapture the story of Jesus in all of its fullness, a desire to be missionary. I think those are shared themes that we resonate with the emerging church conversation in the world. You mentioned several times your disappointment about the fact that there's not greater diversity both in the New Zealand context but also outside of New Zealand. Why do you think in the New Zealand context this is? Is it just a consequence of the fact that this started amongst a group of white people? Or is it that the cultural issues that Maori people face are somewhat different from those faced by white people? A number of scenarios. One is, you know, as you say, that you know, it primarily started amongst you know, me and my friends, so um, it's natural that it initially has life there. Secondly, it might be that the way we have set up a conversation is discriminatory. You know, is it just boys with their electronic toys? And so is that unhelpful for other groups? It could be that, that cultural change moves at different pace. Um, so, for example, the Polynesian cultures are much more tied to a very strongly church-based historic way of doing faith. And I suspect that in the next five to ten years, we will start to see second-generation Polynesians saying, who are born in New Zealand, much more exposed to globalisation, saying that the faith of our fathers no longer makes sense. Uh, and so perhaps at that point, productive dialogue will emerge and the movement will become richer. So it could just be that cultures are moving at different rates and have different historic influences. Your wife is also involved in some of this and uh, both of you are linked in some way to the Future Church website. Tell me a bit more about the Future Church website. My wife, um, Lynn, who blogs at emergentkiwi.org.nz backslash Lynn, she works as a researcher for the Baptist Union and so she has her finger on the pulse as far as the church in New Zealand is concerned statistically. She's also on staff at the church. And the Future Church website uh, started about four years ago and it was birthed from the Methodist denomination. It's a connecting space. 
just meant to be a website that enables groups to share stories, to have resources. And that electronic connecting became a physical connecting at the end of last year with a conference, which attracted you know, a very broad range of people. The Methodist denomination at that point withdrew the funding for a variety of reasons, mainly because of structural changes going on. And so Lynn and I offered to host the website, really. I was very interested to see the involvement of women in the, the initial thrust to get churches thinking about the future. Uh, on that website, yeah. for example, there's a, a history of the first person to work on that commission that you spoke of. I'm just about to put up an interview um, on my blog with a woman reflecting on women in the emerging church in New Zealand and male culture, a sort of a podcast thing that we did just yesterday. The, the Emerging Church in New Zealand has tried to be aware of and involve women as much as possible. We're still, we've got a long way to go and a lot to learn, but there has been consistent presence of women and their voices in the conversation. You say that the emerging churches in New Zealand have been going for about 10 years. That takes us back to 1996, right? And yes. the Methodist Churches Futures Group, which, I was, which is what I was referring to on the Future Church website, that had started in 2001 with Rosemary Neve. Now, was Rosemary involved before that with the emerging church in New Zealand? Rosemary and I knew each other before the Future Church website went up. She was involved you know, back into the 80s, really, exploring new forms of church, just pushing things, really. So before the Future Church website, she ran a thing called Spirit of Conversations, which was a once-a-month meeting in a cafe, um, reflecting on faith and spirituality. Uh, and she was also part of a group that were exploring new forms of ritual. So, yeah, back into the 90s. I tend to think sociologically, so I always want to know how the links work. I'm yep. suspicious of the idea that things can start spontaneously because but I distrust this idea that things happen naturally. Naturally always yep. is a cover word for a whole lot of other things that happened behind the scenes. I'm trying to, in that way, think through the history of this global movement. Is it, in fact, that there were links that one is not aware of through which the movement duplicated itself almost like a virus? Or... It I remember reading some time ago a global history of the charismatic movement in which the authors were suggesting that these things were happening at a global scale spontaneously. Which of those two pictures do you think is more true to what happened? Because from what you're telling me, there were things happening in New Zealand in the 80s already with people who knew of one another but who were not necessarily connected in some way. Yeah. So what, what, what is truer of the story, do you think? Um, I think both things are going on. Um, I think that this is a thesis statement that... Sociologically, post-modernity is a global conversation. Therefore, surely 20s to 30s around the world who have a religious upbringing should be starting to feel some shared disease trying to make sense of how their faith works mm -hmm. in a world of the internet and global technological changes. And so if there is a shared global move called post-modernity, then that should be affecting people around the world at the same time in the same way. Then I think there was underlying links going on which enabled people to who knew each other already to keep talking and journeying and sharing ideas and resources. And so you can trace networks that do predate a 2000 or whenever the date of the emerging church because of a shared, shared interest and shared conversation. 
it reminds me a little bit of the idea of class in Karl Marx's writings, where you have a class emerging which is not yet conscious of itself as a class, and then at a certain point it does become aware of itself. Would that also be another way of looking at it, that this thing that we now call the emerging church has in fact been emerging for some time, and people were just not calling it that, but they were now given this phrase by which to label it, and now suddenly it makes sense to them that this is what it is. And that, in fact, there really is no comprehensive history as yet to exactly how this thing really started. Yes, certainly I am a bit suspicious of histories of the emerging church. With all respect to my you know, good friend Andrew Jones, when he talks about a history of the emerging church, I think what he's doing is identifying some landmarks that him or his friends found helpful rather than saying it started here or it started there. Richard Florida's book, The Creative Class, that type of book would suggest that there is a you know, sociological movement amongst 20s to 30s who are educated uh, and artistic. And so, in one sense, is the emerging church just a contextualization of faith in that class? Now, hopefully the story of Jesus will encourage that contextualization to become global and not local and to share itself with other classes. Yes, I think certainly from your readings in globalization, particularly the work of Roland Robertson, well, I'm also thinking about those people who contributed to the globalization theory from an economic perspective, who really would say that there are huge economic shifts underlying the cultural shifts. Whichever one came first is not really important. The fact is that they influence one another in some way. And in that sense, if you want to take the cultural route, which is to say there is a cultural shift happening which affects people between the age of 20 and 30, which leads them to not find understanding in traditional forms of Christendom, then you would have an explanation. You would then say, well, you know, these economic shifts from, let's say, manufacturing economies to service-oriented economies, and yeah. that indicates a vast shift in yeah. what is happening. So in that sense, you could then even, again, look at the origins or the influences on the emerging church as being outside of the control, as it were, of the church. Because Emmanuel Wallerstein, who looks more at the economic aspects of globalization, and he would argue that the economic system that has been created has certain unintended consequences. And it actually, even though different countries try and control the system, it's actually the system that controls what is happening. And unless we dismantle the system in some way, the consequences that have been set in motion will continue, which is to uproot people from their traditional cultures and traditional forms of economy. People used to think about this, as we have both have touched on, in terms of indigenous populations and how colonization, for example, affected indigenous populations. But I think what is happening in the modern context is that we're seeing how these economic and cultural shifts are actually affecting everybody. Yeah, and that was the thesis of this paper that I argued at this Globalization of Christianity conference um, in 2001. There should be shared similar characteristics between a 20-year-old using the internet to buy shares in Brazil and a 20-year-old using the internet to buy shares in New Zealand. You know, there's a shared conversation, and, and so the, the traditional view of contextualization as localized was actually an artifact of modernity, and that we needed to think about what context has been reshaped in a globalized conversation. The other comment I want to make is that most of the emerging church works do have some reference to post-modernity, and therefore I, th I think are aware of the sociological dimensions 
or impact of what's going on. The whole basis of my PhD thesis was to look at the sociology of post-modernity in light of this emerging church conversation. And I think the third thing I'd like to say is that in my book, um, I offer a model of cultural engagement called the DJ, which enables you to um, not be assimilated by the culture and not withdraw from the culture, um, but to sample both positively and negatively dimensions of the culture to preserve your own identity. And I think the fourth thing I'd like to say is that I often use, there's a DVD called One Giant Leap, and there's a song in there called My Culture, and it has shots of people from around the world, a New Zealand Māori person, uh, Johnny Clegg and Savuka from South Africa, Robbie Williams, someone else from Trinidad and Tobago, I think. And it's just a fascinating cultural study just watching that one song. And here are all these local voices that also share a, a shared global conversation. They share a pain about the loss of relationship with their ancestors and with their fathers. Uh, and the best line is Johnny Clegg saying, this is my culture, this is my time, this is now. You need to hear my voice. And this very strong affirmation of this desire for identity but it is globally connected. That does it for the show. In part two of our third podcast, Steve Taylor will talk about his book, The Out of Bounds Church, his blog, Brian McLaren's recent visit to New Zealand, and he reviews the movies Narnia, The Fastest Indian, and Firefly. If you would like to send me comments and suggestions about the podcast, or if you have produced music that you would like to be played on the show, contact me via email at e-merge at gmail.com or you can leave a message on our listeners' feedback line at e-merge with Skype. Our theme music is from Mary's Baby, produced by proust.co.uk. If you would like to find out more about the Emerging Church, follow the links for the show. This is the Red Herring signing off. Thank you for joining me. We play out with the song Justice from the album Backbone, featuring two Johnnies in the basement. Until next time, peace and justice.